Welcome to Between the Two Trees. I am the Reverend Dr. Theta Franz, and this is podcast number seven, The Possibility of Perfection. I'm looking forward to sharing the interview that follows. I interviewed the Reverend Sarah Gates. Sarah is a seminary pal of mine who is really skilled at being able to practice being present and she offers practical tools and ways that can help you slow down and really enjoy your life. You'll want to check out the show notes after you listen to the podcast. I have an emotion inventory that Sarah shared with me and I also have her website link there as well and you can feel free to check that out. She offers spiritual counseling. She also performs ceremonies, weddings, funerals, memorial services, and she's just an all-around fantastic person with so much good teaching and wisdom to offer. So here's the interview. Enjoy. I am sitting here. Okay, well, I'm not sitting here. I'm sitting on the phone with a dear friend and seminary sister, Reverend Sarah Gates. And she is an amazing human being who is about good work, great work, inspiring work. And I will let her tell you all about that. So, Sarah, what is it that you do? Yeah, thanks, Data. I am inventing a 21st century ministry. I'm taking a 20-year adult spiritual journey and some entrepreneur and business skills and my seminary training and just stirring it into a soup. And we're going to see what, you know, what comes out. But I'm... I'm inventing what what I'm being called and asked to do, and what shows up in different ways. Um, I'm out for wisdom teaching. Um, one of the things that I've gotten really clear about is that all the headwaters from which all of the great religious traditions spring is wisdom, and wisdom is concerned with the transformation of the human being into our true self, and that is. That is the work of our lifetimes, certainly mine, and I think all of ours. So I'm really focused on wisdom teaching and really coming to an entirely new understanding of religion and being willing to squarely look at what our beliefs are because our beliefs are malleable. And as we become aware of them, we can then have a lot of power over um, defining our beliefs and the beliefs that serve us and who we are here to be. I've got my entrepreneur and my minister hat on in, in one hat, and I'm just having fun and, and seeing where it goes and how it can be of service to the people that come in my path. That sounds wonderful. And for um, everybody who's listening, you need to know that Reverend Sarah, in, in our little um, community, our faith community, our seminary community, we refer to her as Sarah the Wise. And you will see why that is as Sarah and I talk, because she has all kinds of wisdom. Also, I will offer a, a link, if it's okay with you, Sarah, I'm going to offer a link to your website um, at the, along with the show notes. And uh, will that be okay with you if I do that? Of course. Okay. I will offer a link to Sarah's website. She offers spiritual counseling, particularly for executives and she does uh, ceremonies and services, funeral services, and do you do weddings too, Sarah? I do. Yeah, and Sarah does weddings. 
So anybody who's interested in connecting with Sarah, you'll be able to do that after, uh, at the end, at the show notes. So we'll be able to have that information for folks. And Sarah and I are here together today to talk about the possibility of perfection. And this is a phrase that came to me one day while Sarah and I were having a conversation. Can you tell me a little bit about your philosophy around that? I think like a lot of us, I spent so many years striving for some really not quite definable and certainly not attainable place of perfection that I thought would be based on achievement, degrees, career, outward signs. What I have come to is understanding that perfection always is. It just is. And as I'm able to be in the presence of any fear, be in the presence of any belief and limitation about myself or my circumstances, those then manage to dissipate. And I realize I simply am in the presence of perfection. And like so much of the spiritual journey, it is simply remembering. And so I I play with perfection and how is this moment perfect? What is this teaching me? Um, Where is the perfection that I'm simply not seeing? And what is in the way um, for me? And that's often fear and some kind of a belief in scarcity or limitation that is asking me to look at it squarely so that it can then dissipate like the, you know, shadow that it is. Uh, It sounds like there's, there are steps involved to this process. So what would be the first step? Because I heard you saying that you have this situation and then you, is it, the, is it curiosity and, and then acceptance, or do you, do you see it as a series of steps? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think there's a, a couple of different ways that it unfolds. One thing that I'm learning to trust is what I call interestingness. And there is something holy about what interests us. We cannot fake it on the inside. We cannot fake what we are interested in. And so when I notice that I'm interested in something, then absolutely just, all right, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be my five-year-old self with curiosity and wonder, and I'm gonna chase it, and I'm gonna just allow it to unfold. And you know, see what happens. And so that's, that's the, first, the first step when it's something that captures my interest. The other, thing, the other way that it unfolds is if I notice within me a contraction or some resistance, and that shows up as fear, or I'm looking at a situation in a way that really doesn't align with who I know myself to be. And so then, just can I turn towards that? I might feel like I want to run screaming, but if I'm afraid of something, if I feel resistant to something um, that's showing up in my life, then I think there, life would be interestingness, but it's just kind of gently turning towards it with curiosity and saying, okay, I'm here and I got this. I'm an adult now. Whatever is coming up, I'm able to handle and integrate and something needs healing. So those are the two ways that kind of one is on the positive side, one is on the more challenging side, but ultimately they're the same thing. 
that it's interestingness. Something is showing up that's getting my attention and stepping in, waiting in with open arms, open heart. It sounds like there's not a whole lot of judgment happening on your end. It sounds like you're labeling these events as interesting as opposed to saying, oh my gosh, that's terrible, that's horrible, that's the worst thing ever. Is, is that part of the process? Yeah, it's funny. Last year, as I've been just having this unfold, I took a vow of silence as it relates to criticizing. I'm criticizing a situation, a person, and it always boils down to criticizing the present moment. That's what it would always boil down to for me. And so I took a vow of silence as it relates to criticizing the present moment, which is finding fault or judging when I'm criticizing. Now, is that just out loud or is that in your head too? No, it is. It's both. And so the bigger challenge is in my head. And, And so it is. There's no judgment. And even then, if I see judgment or criticism, then I know that I have the power to take control of my thoughts. And I have the power to step right in and tell my mind what I want it to say, to return to the truth, to return to who I am. And I use a mantra. Um, I use a mantra for that that's been a practice I've used for many years. So you're correct. There is no judgment. And also just being very, very clear that when I notice judgment, criticism, I have a responsibility on my own behalf and on behalf of the humanity that I'm part of to step in, tell my mind what I wanted to do in that moment, which is never to criticize and never to judge. Would you be willing to share your mantra with us or is that Mm -hmm. something personal? No, absolutely. My mantra is be still and know I'm God. And then I also have two different translations from the original Aramaic. One of them is let go and know I am God. And one of them is cease striving and know I am God. And sometimes I use them one after the other. And sometimes let go is really what's needed. And sometimes cease striving is what's needed. So I use it in its different variations. Hundreds of times a day. Hundreds of times a day. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Wow. Now, do you use the Aramaic phrase or do you say them in English? No, I say them in English because that's, that's my language. Yeah, I have, a, I have an affinity for foreign languages and um, mantras and Sanskrit is my favorite, but uh, I'll take Aramaic too. That'll work. I wanted to ask you, can you give an example? Can you give a practical example of, of how you, you do this. You just mentioned that you have to do this a hundred, hundreds of times a day. How, what does it look like? Can you take us through uh, a few minutes or uh, a part of your day of how it, step by step, how it looks? Like maybe you're having breakfast and your husband took the last of the milk and, um, and <laughs> judgment comes up. I don't know. And, and what you do in that moment. Do you understand what I'm asking? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, um, I, do that. I think that would be really helpful. There's different times that I use it. One of the ways I use it is in times when my attention is not needed. And so my attention, which is just how my consciousness delivers itself into my life, my attention needs something to do. And that's when 
so that I don't, my, so that my mind doesn't jump to the future or jump to the past, start worrying or regretting or whatever. So those times are things like I'm waiting in line at the grocery store, I'm doing dishes or folding laundry. Um, might be that I'm making supper. It could be that I'm walking. Sometime when I don't need to really focus my attention and, my, and therefore my mind will tend to wander into places that it doesn't belong. You know, literally I'll be washing dishes and I'm just telling my mind to say, be still and know I'm God. So that's a very practical way. Another time that I notice it is that when I, as soon as I notice that I'm agitated on the inside, agitated, stirred up, upset, then I'm right there with the mantra because I'm, uh, otherwise I'm going to be in the future in fear or worry. I'm going to be looking at the past and all of that takes me out of reality. All of that takes you out of reality. Could you, could yeah. you explain that to me a little bit more about what your thoughts yeah. on reality are then? <laughs> yeah. So my thoughts on reality are that the present moment is, is reality and the present moment is what exists. And in order for me to reside in the present moment, I have to develop skills that I was not taught regardless of how many years I went to school or how many degrees I have. And so I've learned to reside in the present moment because that's where what is happening is happening. I cannot accept in the unreality of my mind visit the past. I cannot accept in the unreality of my mind visit the future. So I learn and consciousness and my true self, my higher self is always in the present moment. I've, uh, I've come to really being playing with the notion that present moment and consciousness are the same thing. And so as I really want to get to know who I am and who I'm here to be, that's the source of the still small voice within. And so I don't want to miss it. And I think I, from my own experience, there's a set of skills that we need to learn to reside in the reality of the present moment. And, and what are those skills, Sarah? Yeah, um, I think there is a great one, a very important one around emotional intelligence, really the vocabulary of what am I feeling in this present moment, naming it, knowing, and it's so remarkable that at any given moment, I can name, you know, 30 feelings that are present. So emotional intelligence, being able to name what I'm feeling, so I really have a vocabulary I can observe what I'm feeling and know I am not the emotion. I'm the one feeling and experiencing the emotion and the capacity to bear it and to to know as the witness self as consciousness, I'm experiencing this. This is my experience of this emotion and not get lost in it, which I think is really important. So that is really a critical skill. And I think it's a lifetime skill. You know, I can see the anger. I'm not going to get lost in it. And I'm going to consciously respond instead of unconsciously react. So I think that's a, has been a very important skill in my own development. And then I think finding things like I work with a number of people and I teach them about the mantra. And it's really fascinating because, so I think the mantra is a skill to train the mind to be an ally and a servant and not a tyrannical master. I think the mantra is a very important skill to really realize 
I have the ability to train my mind. And I think more important, maybe better said is I have the responsibility to train my mind. It's causing my suffering and it can also cause my peace and cause my joy. I'm, I'm assuming um, the responsibility is because when you're in suffering, you're less able to be fully present to others and to be helpful. And, and then I am adding to the suffering of the world. Then the, the total sum of suffering, I'm contributing to it, I'm making it larger, and I'm in control of that. So I would say, yeah, emotional intelligence is really important. I think skills like mantra are really important. And it's funny because what I'm seeing is that most people, regardless of whether they're practicing the religion they were born into, their mantra is from the religion they were born into. Like I, I so wanted Gandhi's mantra to be my mantra. His mantra was Rama, Rama. And no matter how much I tried that, I, it, didn't, it didn't resonate. It didn't have that feeling of click, like there were kind of clicks in the place. And, and I just see time and again, that's what tends to resonate for people, regardless of where they are in their adult Christian or their adult spiritual life is that they tend to go, uh, what resonates is often what we grew up with. Yeah, that would make sense to me that people would feel most comfortable. What, what would click for them would be a mantra that comes from the faith of their, their origin, the faith of their, what they were raised in, as opposed to something they're trying on. Uh, yeah. It can be fun. It can be fun to try yeah. on other things and explore <laughs> other things. And it's, uh, but yeah, coming back to the faith that you were raised in. And there's a lot of research too about uh, attachment uh, and God attachment and even attachment to a faith path and how that plays out in later adulthood. Even if you call yourself agnostic or say that you're non-practicing or whatever, there's still an emotional connection to the faith that you were raised in, even if that connection isn't necessarily a pleasant one. Uh, mm -hmm. For some people it is, for some people it isn't, but I'm not surprised to, to hear, you, hear you say that. You talked about emotional intelligence being a skill that, that you can develop. Mantra is a skill. Were there any other skills? Yeah, I think that, um, the single most important skill is self-observation and the willingness to just one minute after another to be willing to witness and observe what's happening within and developing that capacity to witness and observe how I'm feeling. I think that's an important one. I think an, another one is really learning to come into your body. I know from my work in the business world and my work with executives, we are very in our head and our energy is literally up here, so far away from the ground, so far away from our bodies. So I think another skill is learning how to bring our awareness and our presence into our physical body. I think as a source of grounding, that's another very important skill. You talk about things being interesting, uh, a lifestyle of interest. I have a lifestyle of curiosity and mm. uh, never ending questions. Well, maybe they end eventually, but lots of questions. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about grounding. What are some of the strategies that you use to, to ground or the strategies that you share with your clients? Yeah, one thing I noticed is that they, 
they change over time. And when I was really working, really felt this call within, and I was trying to get out of high heel shoes and get out of airport, I was really feeling tugged to get out of the corporate life, and I didn't know how. And I didn't know it. I didn't have the vocabulary at the time. But the thing that I found is that I wanted to be barefoot at any moment that I could be barefoot, uh, driving, walking, being in the yard, anything in, in the office. And I was literally learning to come to ground. I had been in, in my head for so long. And so the first phase of it for me was literally having my bare feet on the ground or on the floor, floor of the car, the floor of the house, the yard. And that was really important. I was, you know, literally coming to ground. And that was very important. I still practice that. Another way that I work with people to come to ground, this is a, it takes like less than a minute, and it's so amazing, is to stop wherever you are and notice all of, one at a time, notice all of the colors in the room where you are, all the different shades, all the different variations, and then notice all of the different textures. And just take some breaths and notice the textures, notice the subtleties, and then notice the shapes that you're seeing and notice the shapes. Where am I seeing a square? Where am I seeing a rectangle? Where am I seeing a circle? Where am I seeing a triangle? And that's a remarkable practice. It's like when our minds are working really fast, spinning out of control, I got a lot of fear circling or whatever, I can come into my body, I can slow things down. Sometimes the mantra will work, but sometimes I got to come into my body right now when I start feeling kind of spacey and out of control. That's a really practical technique that I use and that I've taught people. So those are some really practical ones that I that I used. Yeah, that, that visual one sounds like a strategy out of DBT, which is dialectical behavior therapy. And mm. that strategy is five, four, three, two, one, five things you can see, four things you can hear, three things you can touch, two things you can smell, and one thing you can taste. It mm. engages all of the senses. And then it might be different for the different senses. It might be two things you can hear. I don't know. It doesn't matter. <laughs> the, the point is that you're engaging the senses and you're getting present because as can happen, as you explained, we can get ahead of ourselves. We can get in the future and get in anxiety. We can get in the past and we can get regret and anxiety. People tend to see anxiety as a future-focused thing, but I think that when particularly women, we tend to spider web, which means we connect everything to everything else because we're very relational. We're socialized to be that way. And we can connect the past to something in the future and it, gets, it just turns into this big snowball. And it can be very simple when we get present. You talked early in our conversation about remembering. This process is something that helps you to remember. Mm -hmm. I think that's crucial. The illusion tells us the to-do list is what's important. The illusion tells us status is what's important. The illusion tells us our ego is what's important. And we begin to fall into the belief that that's what's real. And it can be very challenging to pull ourselves back from that and come back to what is real. And it sounds like you are, you're living in that. And, and you mentioned before, this has been a process for you. 
you took a vow of silence with regard to criticism and you have taken on these practices of grounding, of being in your body, of being the observer. And I'm just wondering, how has your life changed? What changes have you become aware of that you've needed to make in how you live your life in order to accommodate this way of being in the world? When I look back, one thing that I wanted to share with you, and then I'm going to answer your question, is that our bodies are always in the present moment. And the notion of, like you were talking about the 54321, anything that helps us come into our body, come into our breath, brings us to the reality of the present moment. And that when it helps me to remember my body never leaves the present moment. Emotions reside in the body. And emotions, sometimes if I don't know how I'm feeling, but it's, I feel it in my chest, I'm like, okay, that's going to be something along joy or sorrow because I've gotten really familiar with that. So it helps me to remember that my body is always in the present moment and therefore is always a great harbinger of reality. And in terms of how I've changed my life, about 14 years ago now, I started to feel a really deep call to slow down. And I was an executive at one of the largest companies in the world at the time. It didn't make any sense. But at the same time, it couldn't, I could not deny it. I, I was just feeling this incredible call to slow down. So I took a two-year sabbatical. So the first thing that changed for me is I started to hear this call to slow down. And I, and I said yes to that. And so I have been slowing down. That, that was a really big change. I have been embarking for many years on simplifying my life, which means owning less doing less, and being discerning on my own behalf of what I say yes to. That's been a really important piece as well, simplifying. And that's uh, still underway, still a work in progress. So slowing down, simplifying, that's been really important. And then the practices that have really, some some spiritual practices come and go for me, like the barefoot came at a moment when something was really needing to I was needing help emerging into my next version. But the practices that have stuck with me have been the mantra. I have a practice. I think this is my main practice is doing one thing at a time. Um, Oh, you do one thing at a time. You don't ever multitask. I really aim for that. There's a few things hanging on. Like in the morning, I still study and have a cup of coffee. (laughs) So there's a few little, little things left. But yes, that's. I do one thing at a time. I have a practice of never being in a hurry unless it's an emergency. And so these are the things that have been unfolding, the mantra practice, um, meditation practice. What's happened over the years is that my life is my spiritual practice. And these things that I'm, it's not so much that I sit down today and meditate as I have practices that just are throughout my day. I have a witness practice that's been remarkable that I'm shifting to identify with the part of me that witnesses emotions and thoughts and witnesses this life. With intention, I spent one entire day several years ago with my attention focused on my witness self. And that was a kind of a mind-blowing day that I think helped me shift to, okay, I'm 
have been super fascinated with letting personality go and realizing I created it for good reasons, you know, protection, approval, things like that. And now just realizing there's nothing to protect. There's nothing to approve. And that's the real me. I think the kind of the slowing down and the simplifying that's really helped the practices that are important for me to show up. Yeah, because you created space for them. There was no space for any of that to come in when your life was so busy and full. For people who are listening who are who have busy, full lives, and they might be saying to themselves, well, I can't take a two-year sabbatical from my job. That's crazy. I don't have that kind of money, or that just wouldn't be possible for me. I would derail my career, or I, I have children. I have all these obligations and soccer games and all these things, and I can't, I can't do this. It's, there's just not space. I can't create space in my life. What are some simple, practical ways that people can start to slow down and can begin to experience the possibility of perfection in the present moment? One thing that's really practical and helpful is to, through the course of one week, just a normal week, make a list of everything you spend your time on. Then look at the list and get out a red pen and just take the first step of of drawing a line through the things on the list that you feel are not essential. And then try a week or two of not doing those and see what happens. I'm assuming you've done this with a client or maybe for yourself. Is that the case? Yeah, both. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And what's what's been the result? Could you talk a little bit about that? <laughs> well, it's really funny. Like I had these meetings that I would go to and I, I was looking at the list and I thought, this is really not important. And so I crossed it through the list and I just didn't show up. And what happened is nobody noticed. And it wasn't, I'm like, wow, there's three hours right there. <laughs> so that was really funny. And I had to get a little honest with myself about um, social media. I had to get a little honest with myself about, wow, I think I'm going to go for just to quickly check in, LinkedIn was my thing at the time. And, you know, it's been 30 minutes had gone by. I'm like, wow, <laughs> that's a little humbling. So I had to get real honest with myself about social media. That was another one. And sometimes I would try letting something go that wouldn't work. Like I would, like, gosh, I'm spending 90 minutes by the time I drive to the spin class and take the spin class. And I would say, I just work out at home, but I didn't. And I know that taking care of my body is super important. And so I like, I can always put it back on. I'm like, okay, I was wrong about that one. So I'm going to put that back on. And I just did it pretty lightheartedly. There was no judgment, but I was really wanting to slow down, really wanting to slow down. So identifying the things that are not essential is a way of creating space in your life. And then you don't have to worry about what's, uh, you know, limiting something that's important to you. And all of those things that you're doing, then making space, slowing down, giving yourself focus in the, being focused in the present moment, being in your body. Those are all ways of being better able to see the perfection of the present. How is that, how is that all connected? Can you pull it together for me? Yeah, it's really helped me be, um, it's just helping me learn to be present with 
whatever is. Always what is, is perfect. Sometimes it sucks. Sometimes it's just ordinary. Sometimes it's wonderful. But whatever it is, by the very nature of the fact that it is, I know that I can trust it. There's always a bigger picture that I cannot see, but in which I participate and in which my life matters. And the same is true for you and for everyone. And so I, I couldn't, I had no clue of what was real because I was constant. I was so busy that I had no idea how I was feeling. I had no idea what was really happening versus what I was making up in my head. I was trying so hard to be important without realizing I am inherently and significant, and so are you. So it really did. I had to slow down to be able to see reality, and then as I'm able to be, simply be in reality, in the present moment, I can see its inherent perfection. And sometimes I'll say, what's this about? (laughs) And I don't always know immediately. I have this burning question. I hear what you're saying, that the, the present moment can be perfect. And then I think of some of the questions that I'm encountering as a minister. Well, if the present moment's perfect, how do you feel about genocide? Where's the perfection in genocide? Where's the perfection in people getting, uh, where's the perfection in gun violence? Where's the perfection in when you lose a loved one, someone who's very dear to you in a way that's tragic and sudden? How is that perfect? And what would your response be to that? One way that I think about that is when it comes to giving, you know, it's a lot easier to write a check for a cause half a globe away than it is to be patient with my neighbor who is noisy. The only life I can do anything about is my own. And I believe deeply that the way we change the world is by changing ourselves. And If I am confronted with something, then that is mine to engage in. So I believe that the work is to live as fully as possible the individual lives we are given and to contend with the individual circumstances that come our way. Um, That's what I think our work is. And that is how we change the world. I can see how that would apply easily when we're seeing global things or national things that are upsetting. We can take care of, I often talk about just taking care of what's in our hula hoop. Shout out to Ann Lemon, a friend of mine who gave me that philosophy. I don't want to take credit for that. That's not mine. (laughs) I I can see how that would work. What about for personal, what we would call tragedy? I'm not sure you would call it tragedy because you're not, not judging things. What about for personal experiences that are deeply painful? And I don't know what else to call them except tragic because I'm not where you are. Uh, how, do, how does someone get to a place where they can see perfection in something that is excruciating? Well, I'll tell you, and you know about this example because I'm going through it right now, but my husband and I have, um, we have two dogs that are family and we love them enormously. Last week, one morning, Rex is nine pounds and Janie is 50 pounds and Janie's elderly, Rex is young. One morning last week, they were in our front yard right by the front steps and our next door neighbor's dog, who's very aggressive, attacked them and Rex was very seriously wounded 
and Janie was wounded saving Rex, we have a long healing process in front of us. And, you know, as I, as I was going through that, what I needed to do in that moment was take care of our dogs, whatever that meant, you know, the right care, everything, um, take care of our family. I needed to let our neighbor know and let him know in no uncertain terms it's have to stop. I also had to immediately forgive the dog and the neighbors. That's what I needed to do, and I was able to do that. And, you know, I had this, I had these moments for a day or so where I was kind of beating myself up, like, did I have some intuition to not let the dogs out? You know, why did this happen? This is horrible. My beloved creatures are suffering. I'm suffering. Our friends are our friends are suffering because they decided to put their dog to sleep because of this. I just was able to be with it. You know, I did everything that was in front of me to do. I felt everything that was mine to feel without trying to numb it, you know, with food or wine or whatever I would normally turn to. Then I was able to just sit with the realization that I don't know why this happened and I can't see the whole thing. And my husband said to me, he said, you know, maybe this happened because there's something wrong with that dog and it could have been a child. And maybe Rex and Jane got hurt to prevent a child getting hurt. There's some other course that we can't see. And I don't know that that's the case, but I trust God and I trust life. I don't like what happened. I wouldn't have had it happen for the world. It took me a few days. So like, okay, I'm going to be with this. I have no idea what's mine to learn. I can just do what's in front of me to do. And I can absolutely know there is an entire fabric of life and my life is one thread and all I can do is live my one thread and therefore help weave the most beautiful fabric that life on earth can be. So that's just a real very recent example of a tragedy, something that I hated happened that I felt completely incompetent to deal with and I dealt with it anyway. So does that help? That really helps a lot. And it, it sounds, I, I, first of all, and I know I've shared this with you before we started recording, but I am very sorry for what happened to your dogs. And I, I don't have dogs. I have cats and I, and I adore them. And I know that you, your dogs are your furry children. So for you to be able to go through that kind of a situation and talk about immediate forgiveness and immediate, you know, be, being present and being with all those feelings. My hat's off to you. I can't imagine the skills you had to engage to be able to do that. And uh, I am sorry that that, that that happened. And it's, I think it's interesting that your husband was able to, there's that word again, you interesting. See, you're teaching me already, Sarah. <laughs> it's interesting that your husband was able to offer that perspective because we don't know what's possible. We don't know the why of things unfolding the way they do. And there's, it sounds like in this perfection of possibility, there is a, a place for trust in the great goodness, trust in the universe, God, the, the God of our understanding that there's something unfolding here we can fall into instead of resistance. Absolutely. Yeah, we can absolutely trust life and trust God and what's coming our ways. 
for us. And sometimes we're participating in a bigger web that we don't understand the part we're playing. And it is. It's a, it's, there's the mystery. There's the big mystery. <laughs> so I don't think there's always an answer. Well, this is a real, this practice, this perspective of the possibility of perfection in the present moment is a teaching that could offer lots of folks greater peace, the ability to be with what's real, and to really come into a true understanding of who they are and whose they are. I think you're offering a tremendous service and a tremendous gift to the people you counsel, to us here today. It's wonderful, Sarah, and I thank you for it. I thank you for being willing to go through what you've had to go through personally to be able to, to learn and then teach. Thank you. And uh, with that, I think we'll wrap it up. And thanks for being on my podcast. Fantastic. Thanks, David.